Blog Talk Radio. Out of breaking news in Minnesota and a dramatic turn in the case of that veteran police officer who shot and killed a 20-year-old black man during a traffic stop Sunday. The police chief called it a mistake, but tonight the officer is under arrest, charged with manslaughter. And the city of Brooklyn Center is under a curfew, racing for a fourth night of protests. Here's CBS's Omar Villafranca. In just over 24 hours, Kim Potter went from officer to inmate. The former Brooklyn Center police veteran charged with second-degree manslaughter, which carries a maximum penalty of 10 years in prison. Brooklyn Center police say they stopped 20-year-old Dante Wright on Sunday for having expired tags and found he had an outstanding misdemeanor warrant. When police were trying to cuff him, Wright jumped into his car. The former police chief says Potter thought she grabbed her taser. But instead of the taser, Potter pulled her pistol firing the fatal shot. The investigator examining her duty belt after the shooting says the taser was on her left side and her handgun was on the right, as in this photo. You know what side your gun is on and what side your taser is on. The charges come after another night of protests. More than 70 people were arrested. Tonight, city officials are calling for calm. And I ask the community to remain peaceful as we live through this tragic event. No word yet on when Potter will be in court, but she will spend the night in jail. Protesters and activists have gathered in front of the police department again, so we'll wait and see what happens tonight. Nora? All right, Omar Villafranca, thank you. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks, along with David Banks, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, Dave Zapolo, Samson Riddle, William Williams, Clinton Stewart, Dennis Merritt, and Cliff Stewart tonight as we get ready to address this issue of what's going on in this country right now is absolutely insanity. Uh, we were shocked, I'm sure as most of our listeners were, in regards to the killing of this young man who was pulled over, Dante Wright. In a traffic stop and lost his life at the age of 20 years old. Uh, and that's why we, we believe those things to be senseless. Dennis, your thoughts? Yes, it's getting uh, really out of hand. Uh, young as he was, and again, like you said, it was a traffic stop. And how do we have, you know, a, a life lost at a traffic stop? At all means, where's to, you know, uh, use deadly force at, 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 at last as a last resort. So it's getting out of hand. It's getting crazy. Something has to be done. We need to bring that to the America's attention. We need to get this fixed. And how do you think we do that? What we need to do is we we need to put law. We need to put uh, laws in order, and we need to hold our policemen accountable. If we don't hold them accountable, they're going to continue to do what they're doing. 
Absolutely. That's your, your thought. Yeah, as I was actually reading this story uh, about Mr. Wright, and the fact is that um, they try and smear the, again, as the MO is of all these cases that we've seen, they begin to smear the victim. You know, they, oh, he shouldn't have ran. Oh, he had outstanding warrants. Oh, he had this and that. What you failed to, what they failed to mention is he was a 20 year old father of a two year old child. He had a family. He had people in the vehicle with him when this female officer senselessly discharged her firearm. You know, she could have hit the passenger. She could have hit innocent bystanders. She could have done any number of things. And for her to actually come back and say that, oh, I thought it was my taser, is an outlandish lie. They they even came back and said her taser was on the opposite side of her body. And you can't tell me as a police officer anywhere in the United States you're not trained to know where your equipment is and properly maintain it. The fact of the matter is this young man was murdered at a traffic stop. Just like, and thank God, the lieutenant, the military lieutenant who was a medic, had the good sense to pull over into a well-lit gas station. This man, he could have lost his life in some small town driving to, I believe it was Utah. He was pepper sprayed. He was held at gunpoint. And now the police that pulled him over, they got fired. He's suing the police department. I thank God that he's taking that action. And I'm surprised the military isn't backing him to even go after these police even further. Oh, without question. Uh, these are, this thing is, is out of control. Uh, how does a veteran, 26 years on the force, uh, this young lady, uh, 26 years on the force, makes a mistake, and as they begin to show what a taser does, the weight of a taser, the weight of a gun, uh, the taser is on your left. Is that correct? I believe the gun is on the right. The 26 years. It, it really raises high questions, and that's the questions that are being asked now. How do you make that mistake? And the taser is partially plastic, if I'm not mistaken, from what they show the material that it's made of. William? Well, you know, when you heard that, you knew something was wrong. I mean, that whole story doesn't even, doesn't even sound right. Because a right-handed person, the, the firearm is on the right side. Taser is sitting on the left side. It, the contour of it is different. The weight of it is different. The, the, even the look, the yellow... The yellow uh, uh, portion of the taser. Right. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's different. When you see the video, and I mean, we're going to get into the story. You see the video. There's there's no way. There's no way. I mean, she's standing there with her gun and shoots the man in the car. I'm, I'm just sorry. The, the trigger on a weapon, uh, when you're talking, it's totally Well, the weight. The weight. The weight of the, the gun. gun. I mean, you got a loaded gun, 15-round magazine, and 9-millimeter of 40 caliber, whichever one she had, you know the difference of the gun. You know it. You you know that in the hand. And plus, the contour of the taser is totally different. It's totally different. And then to reach across your body. Which is against yeah, that's where the, the proper weapon yeah, is. That's why it's over there. So it does not get right. confused. Right. So you have to re- take your right hand, reach across to your left pocket to get this weapon. And you, you know this. No, it doesn't hold water. There's no way... That lie will hold one. And you just have to see the contrast. We're just coming off two mass shootings of multiple people killed. They're shooting back at the police. They get in a lot. They come in a lot. They're going to have their day in court. But in a week or month of a trial in, in the same state of Minnesota, and then just today on the news, there's a 13-year-old that just got killed in Chicago. Turning around, putting his hands up, he gets shot square in the chest. So it's like, what do you do or what can you do 
to just have the law evenly distributed because it's just it's just disproportionate that every time it's a so-called I made an accident, someone's dead. It's a per, it's a black person or a person of color. Well, the point exactly. How's every accident uh, in high numbers? How is how is that how is that reasoned out? And you know what I'm really tired of, and we're going to get into this on the other side of the break, folks. Feel free to dial into the show six four six two hundred zero six two eight six four six two hundred zero six two eight. I was going to make a point. I'm going to wait to the other side of the break as we come back and start this uh, conversation uh, that really it's really getting old. It's getting played out. And let me just say this, and we'll discuss it on the other side of the break. We need to have a conversation. We need to have a conversation. We need to have some dialogue. We have been hearing that since Eric Gardner was killed in New York. Every time somebody dies or is shot at the hand of law enforcement, well, we need to have a discussion. It's not working. You have you have George Floyd. Uh, death that is remembered at this time, you have a trial that's concluding and hoping for justice, hoping that something happens where, you know what, we are going to see something different. I have reason to believe the dialogue apparently is not helping because men continue to die. There's no change in behavior of officers. We talk about it Oh, this needs to happen. Members of Capitol Hill start talking about it. But people and body bags continue to be filled in this country with African-American people, which sends a strong message. Your life simply does not matter. You can say whatever you want. You can say whatever is politically correct. Your life as an African-American, that means you can get pulled over. For expired tags that because COVID has slowed DMV down and they've been given extensions on uh, re- registration, well, what if I get stopped and pulled over with tags and I'm black? I can die as a result of my tags being expired. It is what it is. We're going to dig into it. 646-200-0628. We'll be back on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect you. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent. But that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, 
suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. And their hands were incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crime. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence on average 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-con, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize they didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to reform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? Absolutely not. It's not a toy. You know that. Do I? I bet it looks like one. Yeah, well, it's not. Anyway, I need it to protect you, your sister and mom. From what? From bad guys, like on TV. But what about the eight kids who got shot every day by mistake? Their daddies probably thought they were safe, too. Where'd you hear that? TV. Yeah, well, maybe we don't believe everything we hear on TV. Where'd you keep it? <laughs> it's hidden. I bet it's on top shelf of the closet. Under your sweatshirt. Is it loaded? It's not. I, I keep the bullets. In the boots with the red bases and the chest beside the bed? I haven't found them yet, but I'm sure I can. You always tell me to be curious. Remember when I found my Christmas gift? I'm a good climber, you know. No. No, that's not what I meant. Look, I, I need to be ready if someone breaks in. What about when it's just me and Mom? You taught me to be brave. I can use a gun to protect her. No, Justin, I promise. I'll teach you how to handle a gun when you're old enough. What if I don't make it to old enough? I could get bullied and decide it's too much for me. It would be so easy with our gun. Our gun? No, buddy. My gun. But it is our gun. In our home. Happens all the time. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I'm always here for you. But, Dad, you're not always here. Increasing 
There was a shooting. When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be changed. Ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. Please have a seat. I'll be honest. Your resume, not what I'm used to. I know. Okay, so what would you bring to my company? What do you need? I need a hard worker. Good. I've got two part-time jobs and to help my parents pay the bills. I need problem-solving skills. I got through high school without a car, a phone, or a computer. No college degree, though. Not yet, but life's taught me a lot, and I'm ready for more. Well, you're not the typical kind of candidate that I hire. But you are exactly what I'm looking for. Your company could be missing out on the candidates it needs most. Learn how to find, cultivate, and train a great pool of untapped talent at gradsoflife.org. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we begin another really difficult journey. Uh, Dante Wright died at the hand of an officer who claimed she killed this man by mistake. She pulled the wrong weapon and took his life. 20 years old, pulled over for a traffic stop. Uh, my understanding is, is that there were some, some outstanding warrants. Um, as you know, in, tra- in a traffic stop, if there's a warrant, maybe you didn't appear in court. Maybe you had something else going on, but you weren't convicted of a crime. Uh, you simply have to appear to defend yourself if there's been such an accusation or you failed to appear in court, uh, which is an FTA. Did that come with a death sentence? This is a veteran of the force of 26 years who was actually training, William, as we discussed earlier, was actually giving training at this time. Uh, It's hard to to believe, given all of those circumstances as they are, 
that a mistake was made, that an error was made. Hypothetically speaking, if I had a firearm in this studio right now and carelessly handled it, taking the life of any person in this room, I would be held accountable. Period. Accident or no accident, she's facing uh, second-degree manslaughter charges, which comes with a maximum of 10 years. That's the maximum penalty. David, your thoughts? Again, uh, again, I, I agree with the, the other hosts here that it's it's highly improbable that that an officer would pull the wrong weapon. However, um, you just never know what's in the mind of a person. Her statements, uh, contemporary contemporaneous statements, tend to indicate that she did not intend to shoot him and that she intended to pull the taser whether there was some sort of stress or something if if it if it if this is actually what happened uh my my major concern is whether it's negligent uh homicide reckless behavior that she's held accountable to the full extent of the law at least what the law requires for her to be charged with and it seem it would seem appropriate manslaughter would be the charge that that she would be uh if in fact it was an accident, uh, it's just it's just a tragic situation. But what really irritates me, uh, I was listening to Fox News today, and they continue to come back with the same old cliche. Well, they, he should have complied. Well, people who, uh, if if everybody complied with the law, they wouldn't have a need for police. So the question the question remains whether compliance doesn't or lack of compliance doesn't uh give police the right to be judged during an executioner uh in those particular situations again if if uh if if he didn't comply you still don't kill him because he don't, doesn't comply if, if he didn't threaten the officer he still should not be dead as a result of the day now accidents will they happen these type of things rarely happen but when they do happen, uh, the, the problem has been, whether it's an accident or no accident, that cops are traditionally not held accountable for their actions, whether intentional or unintentional. And hopefully uh, we can turn the table where more officers are prosecuted and not given the benefit of the doubt that they always must have had a reason to justify their behavior that everybody should get on board that the cops are the greatest thing since sliced bread. I don't have any, any ill will against cops. I just think they're human and they need to be held accountable. Like all of us are held accountable uh, in all of these situations and not, and not be given a pass because they wear a badge uh, or they wear a blue uniform. It's just, just that's just inexcusable. And it, it's a, it's a sad situation all the way around. And I, I'm, I'm hope, hopefully, if if this uh, officer, if this was an accident, she ha she has she she has just should I haven't seen any remorse from her, which is another thing that bothers me. If it was an accident, okay, so why haven't you been contrite on TV? I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to shoot him. I haven't seen any of that. 
So that fact would lend you to believe that maybe it wasn't an accident. But look, uh, the country is at a point of frustration. Eric Gardner, we're going to get into some of these cases. That's why we call it the senseless killing of individuals within our society who have died really senselessly. Eric Gardner was simply selling cigarettes on a street corner. He was not armed. He had no weapon. On the video that they showed on YouTube, Mr. Gardner raises his hand. says, man, I'm not doing anything. Just like this. I'm not doing anything, man. They ambushed this guy. Took him to the ground for no reason. This man didn't have a gun waving it in Times Square. He was selling some cigarettes trying to make a living on a, on a corner in New York City, which you'll find every hustle in the world. It's not unusual. It's not even really, in reality, an arrest situation. It's a citation at its, at its lowest level. He lost his life. He is on the floor saying he cannot breathe. Begging these cops, I can't breathe. Till they kill him. So you'll have to pardon empathy with cops killing individuals who are killing people in our society. Michael Brown in St. Louis killed needlessly. For what? The initial thing, oh, he sold a box of cigars or a couple of cigars out of a store. You kill him? No weapon. Walter Scott. No weapon. They kill him. George Floyd. A knee on the neck for a so-called alleged $20 counterfeit bill. You put your knee on this man's neck for nearly 10 minutes as he begged for his life. You'll have to pardon the lack of empathy. We have a problem. We have a situation that is out of control. This man leaves a, a, a young baby boy behind over a traffic stop. Don't tell me what you accidentally did. Posing no water. Dave. And one of the things we've heard before is the threshold for actually using deadly force is, is the person a danger to the police or the community? And in none of these cases that you brought up, was the person a danger to the police or the community? They, it, a great example is that you could have issued a citation. In this case, you would have taken him down to the court. The court would have issued another warrant for him to come into court or do it over Skype or, or Zoom. And he, it would have been taken care of. 
he didn't have to be killed. He didn't have to die. But yet you'll have a gentleman that kills 10 people in Aurora. Boulder. He walks out. Boulder walks out with a leg wound. Well, same thing with the Aurora City uh, theater shooting. Walked same thing. Walked out. I mean, you were half talk- a massacre. Massacre. You're talking about both situations in the in the Boulder shooting. They said the customers saw the man shooting at them in the parking lot, shooting at other people in the parking lot. So he's a threat to Dave's point to the community and to officers. He's not shot. He's, he he, he think- takes no shot. Well, the Aurora theater shoot uh, suspect was out in the car reloading. Yes. He's- and they pulled up on him while he was reloading his weapon. He's and, and he still didn't get shot. There's clearly a problem here. There is a problem. But but there's I think there's also another problem here, too. You know, these guys, Dennis has said in the opening, we need, police officers need accountability. And I'm looking at this. They said that Kim Potter, Officer Potter, that is involved here in this shooting, here, there was a situation here where she was one of the first officers on the scene in a fatal shooting in 2019. Where they actually killed a man who had allegedly, you know, that's with air quotes, allegedly grabbed a knife. Now, 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 the thing that was so so suspicious here, reportedly, she had told the other two officers that were involved in the shooting to exit the residence, get in their separate cars, turn off their body cameras, and don't say anything. This is the same officer that shot Dante Wright. I mean, look. We're going to deal with these issues tonight. You're going to hear a lot on this show. Uh, we're going to play some some, some clips uh, for you as well. Um, senseless killings by law enforcement continue in this country at an alarming rate. And when you can do this in the middle of one of the most uh, impactful killings of our time with George Floyd, that shook not only the nation, but the world as we watched this man's breath go out of his body. You can do this around the corner from the very courthouse that Derek Chauvin is being tried for the killing of George Floyd. And with no regard for human life. And I'll say this, and where it sits, it sits. Black lives do not matter in this country. They don't matter. You can argue, you can make whatever statement you want to make, but until we stop filling body bags of our young people and African-American people in this country, I don't want to hear what you're talking about. We don't matter because the trend continues. You got a a guy selling CDs. This is all doing all of this summer of killing. He's selling CDs. The cop shoots him close range in his heart. Do you understand that? Close range for selling CDs. Wrestle him to the ground and you shoot him close range and take his life. Don't tell me what's an accident or what's deliberate. This country better wake up. People better wake up. They better fight against this type of nonsense, this type of garbage. And until officers are held accountable and not slapped on the wrist and say, well, uh, he's, he's 
suspended with pay. Lock him up. Lock her up. Because we would we would be locked up in a heartbeat if it was us. Truth of the matter, it is what it is. Right now, I'm very happy as we turn the page into this discussion to bring Tracy Furniton on the call on this show, a very special and honored guest who I'm thrilled to have. We've communicated here on Twitter, and uh, she's a writer, speaker, homeless youth advocate, and social justice abolish the death penalty advocate. Uh, Tracy currently works for the YMCA Youth and Family Services of the Greater Minneapolis Twin Cities area as a life coach, case manager for a program called Minor Connect. Uh, Minor Connect is the first of its kind in the nation uh, that works with homeless, unaccompanied minors while using collaborative community resources with a trauma-informed holistic approach. And Tracy currently has a caseload of 15 active youth. Uh, she has 18 years experience working with at-risk youth. She's going to chime in on this conversation as all lives have been touched uh, of every age group, uh, every young person to adult with George Floyd and what we are seeing in this country right now. Tracy, are you with me? I'm with you, Lamont. I'm here. Well, we're very, very happy. God bless you. Thank you so much. And we're appreciative of you tonight for joining us. And uh, I got your message pretty late the night before. And I said, boy, we got to get her to get on. She has something to say. And we're very, very happy Uh, that you took time out of your schedule. We appreciate that. Well, thank you very much. I'm just as honored to be on and to be even asked. So God bless you and everything that you guys are doing. Um, you know, we have a real issue here, but like, we're better together. And I think this, I've seen, you know, we've, I think we've seen the demons involved in this, but the, the, uh, the, what it's going to be doing is like the unification that the unification of different cultures and the rise up, you know, um, you know, we're going to break down this wall, (laughs) you know, I'm hopeful for that. I'm I'm here for it. Yeah. No, no, and and listen, we need more people like you out here in the trenches and and doing what you're doing, as well as the Just Calls and other advocacy organizations. But I, we're very troubled tonight, um, and, and I, I've done my best tonight to to try to hold the emotion uh, as we mm-hmm. talk about Dante Wright, uh, as I have relived the death of George Floyd over the last mm-hmm. week and a half, seeing this man die. It, it, Something has to be done. Give me your thoughts on the impact of this. And we're right around the corner from the verdict that's going to be coming back mm. uh, probably mm-hmm. early next week is what they anticipate. Uh, yeah. What are your thoughts of what you've seen thus far? And then give me your thoughts, please, on Dante Wright. Absolutely. Um, my thoughts and, you know, I, I feel like, you know, not only <clears throat> I'm a mom and my, of an African-American son, but also I'm a case manager in the Minneapolis area and, uh, you know, the, the systematic racism that has been infested in our communities and agencies and counties, police departments, um, and, you know, so forth has, has been, has been there. However, my scope in my filter right now is through the youth lens. Um, Because I'm a big advocate for my youth uh, and everything. So from the kid 
you know, and I'm going to hold back my emotions, but from the child yeah. who videotaped this, this awful demonic act, um, there's the trauma, there's trauma. Here we go. Let's just find the contagion point. Um, and to me, uh, it, you know, my own kids. So when it happened, you know, my, like it's, you know, I have 15 active, active youth and, and all of them are in that surrounding area. Um, they're housed there, they're in cars there, they're in homeless shelters there. Um, and so from that moment of him being killed in that manner, um, publicly, I think it was the most surreal moment, uh, for these youth because now they're suddenly pulled into that historic systematic racism right in front of their face. And all of us, we... You know, um, I'm big on the trauma-informed training. I, I have a lot to say about that. I don't want to just babble. Um, but uh, th if that helps, our, our scope right now is we've got so much trauma from the actual, ex it, you know, from the core point of the murder, um, the crime, the, you know, however, you know, from whatever per perspective you look at it, you know, we we all come from different faiths, different walks, but something's wrong with these people. And and to be able to, you know, have that happen, and then afterwards, the you know, we weren't supported. We were from that county, from the attorney general at not the attorney general Keith Ellison, but the attorney um, for Hennepin County, who wouldn't press the charges at first. Um, right. and who wouldn't do anything. Um, and, you know, I'll be the first to say, I don't want to, you know, give out too much information, but I've worked with Hennepin County now for the last three years, um, closely with, um, not for, but closely by, because we are a collaborative organization. We like to collaborate. Um, and so I've learned some uglies about the, uh, the ways and policies of, you know, just down to their CPS, I could go on. Um, but right. the juvenile justice system, uh, the probation system, the, the things they lock community agencies out of, the things we, we try to bang down doors for these kids, uh, you know, to get them food stamps. Uh, the, my program specifically works with 15 to 17 year olds. So they're minors. And we consider them unaccompanied minors. And they have slipped through the CPS system. So for whatever reason, they're unstably housed. Um, and, you know, as far as back to the, the systematic issue here um, in Minnesota and in this area, Hennepin County, um, had, we, we've had numerous, like, collaborative meetings with them to attempt to work together in unison young person, you know, to help the young person or the, the youth. And, um, and, you know, it's just been really difficult when there's that constant door shut in your face and a lot of promises made and a lot of talk. Um, and so, you know, long story short, I I'm seeing a lot of different scopes just from this, you know, how it kind of, you know, domino effect out. And well, I see the community doing way more than the county and the police departments. 
No, for sure. And I think I think where your role is so important is we talked last week. I'm going to play a clip here in a moment. It's the parents of Dante Wright as they break their silence at the shooting and the killing of their son. But I want to deal with this really quick. If you think young people, not you personally, but if our listeners in any way think that young people are not affected here, uh, that's a grave mistake. Uh, I shared the story when George Floyd, they were doing the protest uh, on George Floyd's death, and they had this little girl. I'll never forget it as long as I live. She had to be maybe seven, eight, maybe nine, uh, somewhere in that ballpark. And an officer pulled up in her car. And she got out of the car, and the little girl was visibly shaken. And mm-hmm. tears pouring down her face. This is because of what she saw. You yeah. can't hide the televisions. You can't hide what happened to George Floyd. And she was yeah. so scared. And I I thought of her as you were talking about the youth, the age group that you're talking about. And people feeling like, man, if I get stopped by a cop, if my tags are expired on my car, if what it's yes. supposed to be an exciting time for those that age group that you work with is driving, getting a license, maybe going to college, mm. getting a job, you know, that's but now what is at the in the minds of these youngsters as man, what if I get stopped? Yeah. Oh, what if yeah. I get pulled over? So uh, that's why I think your work is critically important because it's one of those things mm-hmm. that really make you stop and think, man, what kind of world are we living in? And it continues yeah. to just spiral out of control. And I said to uh, uh, David Banks here, uh, co-host of this show, man, we got to talk about this because this is critical. Yeah. And I'm going to play a clip. I'm going to play a clip for you really quick. Uh, okay, at Tracy, and I'm going to get your thoughts on it. Some of our hosts, I think, may have a couple of questions for you as well. We're going to get into okay. that as we continue this discussion. Let's play the clip. Cool. Okay. We are joined now exclusively by Dante's mother and father, Katie and Aubrey Wright, along with their attorneys, Ben Crump and Jeff Storms. Good morning to you all. And Mr. and Mrs. Wright, my family and I join many others in sending our condolences, and we hope that you're getting the support you need to help you during this difficult time, and we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning to talk about your son. Mrs. Wright, you said that your son, Dante, called you after he had been pulled over by the police. Can you please share with us what you all said to each other? He called me, and he said, "Um, Mom, I've just been pulled over. I said, for what? He said, they said they pulled me over because I had air fresheners hanging in the rearview mirror. I said, okay, we'll take them down. And then he said, um, he said, well, they're also asking for insurance. And I said, well, when the police officer comes back up to the window, um, give him the phone and I can explain and give him all the insurance information. He said, okay. And then um, the police officers came back up to the window and asked, Dante to step out of the car and Dante said for what am I in trouble and the officer said we're going to explain that when you step out of the car so and they asked him to put the phone down and I heard the phone getting put down pretty hard whether it was on the floor I don't know where he put the phone down Um, and then I heard scuffling and the girl that was with him screaming and I heard an officer ask for them to hang up the phone and then I didn't 
hear anything else. I tried to call back three, three, four times. And then um, the girl that was with us answered the phone. And she said that he, they shot him. And he was laying in the driver's seat, unresponsive. And then I heard an officer ask her to hang up the phone again. And then after that, this is the last time I've seen my son. I haven't seen him since. I'm so sorry. It's just the anguish. And, and Mrs. Wright, you were on the phone for so long with your son, and it seemed at first that the things were under control. Do you have any idea how it escalated the way that it did? Why it escalated the way that it did? I don't know. I know my son was scared. He's afraid of the police. And I just seen and heard the fear in his voice, but I don't know why. And it should have never, ever escalated the way it did. No, ma'am. And, and Mr. Wright, how did you get word and what did police initially tell you about the shooting, sir? Well, um, I got word um, from my wife. She called me and um, she was screaming and telling me what was going on. And um, I was, you know, it was a normal day for us. And we started off as a normal day. Um, I haven't talked much to the police at all. Um, they haven't pretty much given us any information at all. We do know that the police chief, he said that he believes that the shooting, that the officer meant to shoot the taser, not her gun, and that it was an accidental shooting. Do you accept that explanation, Mr. Wright? I cannot accept that. I lost my son. He's never coming back. I can't accept that a, a, a mistake. That's not, that doesn't even sound right. You know, this is the officer that's been on the force for 26 plus, 26 years. I can't accept that. And Mrs. Wright, we know that the mayor has called for this officer to be, to be fired, to be relieved of her duties. What would you like to see happen, ma'am? I would like to see justice served and her held accountable for everything that she's taken from us. And we do know that people are are outraged as in the reports and we're seeing how people are are upset. Many people are upset that again another black man has lost his life at the hands of police. But you all have been consistent in calling for peace and calm. So Mrs. Wright, what do you want to say to those who, who want to take to the streets on behalf of your son. I want to say thank you so much for the support and standing by us and making sure that my son's name has been heard and asking for justice and asking for that we, that we get everything that we need out of this and making sure that my son's name doesn't get swept under the rug and forgot about. And do you still are you still calling for peace? Are you are you still hoping that they can do this a, a protest in a, in a peaceful manner? Yes, Mr. Crump, we know that you're there in Minnesota for the Derek Chauvin trial. Therefore, the Floyd family, as you're now there with Dante's family, and as Dante's father said, and as we said in the report, this police officer, 26 years, not a rookie, 26 years on the force was actually trading another officer 
at the time. So what has to take place for this to stop happening? Well, Robin, as uh, Attorney Storms and I learned last night that she was a training officer. And so it's not about training. It's about implicit bias. It's about giving the same respect and consideration to people of color that we give to white American citizens. We don't see these sort of things happening to white young people that we see happen over and over and over again to young marginalized minorities. They could have given him a ticket, given him uh, a notice to show up, but just like in George Floyd, they could have given him a ticket. They use the most force when it comes to dealing with marginalized minorities. And we can't have these two Americas, one where we treat black Americans different from white Americans in policing. That's when it will stop, when we start treating each other all the same. Same treatment. And before we go, Mr. and Mrs. Wright, tell people about your son. Mrs. Wright, tell people what they should know about Dante. My son was an amazing, loving kid. He had a big heart. He loved basketball. He had a two-year-old son that's not going to be able to play basketball with him. He had sisters and brothers that he loved so much. He was an uncle, a grandson. He had a smile that would light up the room. It was so big and bright. And he was just, he was amazing. And he's my son and he's never gonna, he just had his whole life taken away from him. We had our hearts pulled out of our chest. He was my baby. Mr. and Mrs. Wright, thank you for your strength and, and being with us this morning and, and sharing about your son. And again, our hearts go out to you. And thank you very much. Thank you. Please, please take care. There you have it. You don't have words to express the pain coming from that mother. No. She said her son said air fresheners on the rearview mirror is why he was stopped. The cops go further to ensure that no one hears the violence. See, these actions Mm -hmm. raise questions. Why can't the young lady who was in the vehicle, why can't she stay on the phone? Why am I taking the phone that somehow might show or hear something that we fear the most? That another person has lost their life and the kid mm-hmm. gets out the car and says, hey, did I do something? Something wrong? Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what it was. It wasn't a death sentence. A two-year-old son left behind. 
off of something that could have been avoided. And Mr. Crump makes a good point. When we can be treated equally the same. And he's right. We don't hear of white kids getting shot during a traffic stop. We don't hear of a white man getting killed in New York City for selling cigarettes or CDs. We do not hear it. Why is that? That's the question. Tracy, your thoughts on on the family of Mr. Wright. It is is heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your and you know, her tears. We're with her 150,000 percent, and and this is this is our child too now. And you know, he he already was. We are close knit community. I I'm telling you, uh, like I was saying, what we went through with the George Floyd, but what the come together was in our community, the community agencies, the collaboratives. Um, has brought us together and stronger. And, and this, I, I am just so upset that it has taken another human life um, at the hands of our authoritative peace officers, quote unquote. Um, and, um, and, and it's a, it's a traffic stop. And, you know, all the youth we work with um, in this area, you know, in, in Minnesota, if you're homeless or at risk, and not to say that Dante was because he wasn't, um, but in this area, the YMCA has a lot of like has a lot of you know people involved, and a lot of people that I know knew him and knew how great of a kid he was. So um, we're you know around around us is is something so wrong with if you know this irrational fear of young black men and here's what it is with these people what comes down to it is you know she was a trainer i that to me is like the exact it this explains my exact reasoning like i get better training in the social work area in the mediation in the case management crisis intervention i've had better training in de-escalation verbal de-escalation um and 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 you know, different ways to approach situations of crisis or or tension, period. And the lack of training in these departments around here. And I can tell you that there's we've you know, we've always tried to reach out to the police departments um, as community agencies advocating for young people. Um, and we've tried to make these connections with them to better engage so there could be a better dialogue between the African-American children and, and the trauma and what's going on. And I can tell you, we've had doors shut in Minneapolis, Brooklyn Center, Brooklyn Park. And there's been one police department, and that's Crystal Park. Excuse me, Chris, um, Minnesota, Crystal Police Department. And um, I was able to go there once, and it was, it was brought together by one of our social workers and um, one of the police department leads there. You know, it was really awesome and was really big on getting the community engaged. And this was before COVID, um, but we wanted more dialogue. And we were trying to, you know, diversify this, um, you know, the separation between civilian and police officer. You know, try to break that barrier down. 
Um, and, you know, we sat in there and I, I can tell you this, that the lady didn't make it mandatory and, and only one person showed up from the force out of 53. So is, we have issues and a moral issue. <laughs> yep. No, without question. And uh, I believe some of our hosts have some questions for you. Um, sure. And, uh, go ahead. Cliff. Yeah, Tracy, I just wanted to make a comment on the last statement that you made that only one police officer showed up. I mean, that shows right there the level of interest yeah. at the police department, not only at the officer letter, but at the command level, that they're not really yeah. interested in interacting or really protecting or serving, whatever adjective that you want to use. Of, uh, with their community. They're just really not concerned. Right. They're like, hey, you know, for the most part, uh, the police departments say, hey, in the inner city, um, you're going to you have more crime. You have uh, more black on brown crime, murder, shootings, whatever. And they leave it at that and say, why should we, uh, you know, put ourselves at risk or put ourselves in the in the spotlight? that, you know, we're really down there. The only time that you ever hear about police officers in the in the uh, lower income areas or in community of color is when you hear about a shooting. And then they want to yeah. say, well, the kid didn't comply. They didn't do this or they didn't do that. They were in the midst of they may have been committing a crime where where were you when it was when uh, it was a community ball game? Where were you? on the 4th of July yep. in these neighborhoods so that the people who live there know who you are as a police officer, not just who you are as law enforcement, but who are you in their community as a police officer, as an individual that serves and protects. I, I thought that was very interesting that one police officer showed up because it wasn't mandatory. It shows the level of interest that they have there in their actual community. And I think that's a travesty. And that is something that needs to be attacked uh, from every level, from the mayor on down and from the uh, community leaders on up to, to the uh, chief of police. Yes, I agree. We want in. <laughs> we want in. That's all we want. We want to, we want to talk. We want to open our doors. I think that there's mutual trainings that, you know, they've got a militarized style of de-escalation that scares the crap out of a lot of people. But come on, with African-Americans and this continued statistical, this is, this is becoming beyond, you know, uh, and we're over it. We're over it here. And I would say the majority of us are over it here in Minnesota. Um, I'd say you, we've always got those people that are going to fight the tide and not want to rise up and, and, and do the right thing and be love and come on, you know, and speak up for what's right. Because when it comes down to it, um, there was 600,000 um, cars or uh, people that were unregistered taps. I just wanted to say that I, I posted a few stories today on Twitter. Um, so if you go there, you'll be able to see it. But, you know, just some some crazy statistics because if you drive you know if if you're african-american and you're driving and your tabs are expired and you're in brooklyn center you're screwed but if you are white in apple valley and you're driving with expired tabs trust me you won't get caught i promise yep. you period so what we're gonna what i'm gonna do tracy we're gonna get ready to take a break um we're going to come back. Some of our hosts have some questions for you. Uh, do you still Are you still okay. good on time with us tonight? I'm good to go. 
Okay, we will be bringing on uh, here at about 7 uh, or 8.15, I believe, your time, uh, Tricia Hoffler. Uh, she goes by CK. She is uh, going to be joining us and giving her thoughts on, uh, the, of course, all that's going on in this country. Everybody's talking about the Dante uh, Wright killing. Uh, she's going to be chiming in. I have no problem with you being on that conversation. If you choose to be, we always want to be respectful of your time as well. Take a quick break. And uh, you made a statement. It's time that people rise up. We need to rise up and make a difference in this nation. Uh, we'll be right back. This is AJC Radio. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything. His family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252. Or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. 
How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in the nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70 degree weather it takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven at 104 degrees heat stroke begins followed by loss of consciousness yeah. we got an hour and a half or so Kids in Cars. You're broken down and tired of living life on the merry-go-round. You can't find a fighter, but I see it in you, so we can walk it out. Ladies and gentlemen, to hear the young lady singing a moment in time, I believe the United States, the world, the human race is now at a point of decision. Two things can happen here that can change the landscape of this nation and of the world. 
there comes a moment in time where time stands still, and that's usually uh, prior to a rising up. The question tonight is, who will rise up for this challenge? That we simply say it is enough death and killing and hate and division. And men and women, boys and girls, are judged by content of one's character, as Dr. Martin Luther King said so brilliantly. We're a long way from that. We didn't know it. You would think after all of these years, some way, we have reached a point of change. And we've learned in the last few years if not longer, that the United States, America, the world is at a crossroad of decision. And that is dealing with what we are dealing with today. The senseless killing by law enforcement continues in this country. And what are we going to do about it? We're very honored tonight to have Tracy uh, with us, Ferniton, who has given some insight not only to adults facing these situations, but the very thing that she is giving her life and commitment to, which is the youth of this nation. Uh, and Tracy, we're very glad that you're here with us tonight again. Uh, thank you. We're very happy your... to be here, but under sad. Yeah. Yeah. Let me get to some questions, Tracy, for some of our other uh, hosts here that may uh, have something to say to you. Kendrick, go ahead. Uh, hi, Tracy. Uh, I, I would just have a, want to get your thought on this because uh, yesterday I heard a statement from the mayor of Brooklyn Center that when he checked that not one officer in his force actually lived in Brooklyn Center. And right. to me, it, it's kind of odd that how can you really be involved in a community and kind of know what's going on and feel for that community if none of the people that work there, like, they, I mean, it's like, you know, I take my hat off my badge and I go home and I don't, and then when I come back, this is work. And these people are, are not like my neighbors. They're, they're these people I'm in charge of. So I mean, just kind of get your take. What do you think, how yeah. can this change? And what can we do to get more, you know, community involvement into the local policing and, and to change that, you know, uh, you know, population so that it's, it, the, the local police actually live there. Right. You know, that's, yep. Thank you, Kendrick. That's a really great point. And um, we have brought that up a lot in circles around here, too, that we do, we're, we're very aware that a lot of the Minneapolis police and the Brooklyn Center and the Brooklyn Park, and uh, they don't, yeah, those officers do not live in in those areas that they serve. Um, and, and they're very disconnected. It's a culture thing in their uh, department. And it's a lack of uh ethics to be honest um and it, it you know it it it's been handed down and they're very uh like that i think it's the term blue wall they get that that shield up the qualified immunity up and they have become this you know unprotect you know unfallible you know force that is you know unraveling at the seams as we all know uh and and here in our own communities you know, we feel the tension and, and, um, I, I can drive, you know, I, we, I'm a mobile case manager. So I, I drive throughout the city a lot 
um, and, you know, th- and weave through different areas and, you know, just the differences of, you know, within about a couple blocks of like maybe, you know, North Minneapolis and Golden Valley, you know, it's, it's, it, I know we're the North. I know Minnesota is known to be nice, but we've got our borders. We've got that, that racial segregation going on here. We've got, um, you know, it's, and Brooklyn Park is an extension of like, a lot of our community is is connected in in different ways, and North Minneapolis is like our it's our center core village, and it, it it's reached out, and so Brooklyn Center is really just an extension, as far as like our community. It's our service area for youth and family services. Um, so of course we've always tried to make contact with police officers, but to answer your question, how to get them engaged, uh, I really honestly don't know the magical answer except for they need to copy us they they need some training and some um some conflict management of their own some self-regulation some trauma response techniques coping skills uh and you know as, as being in the social worker field um i myself is i'm not a licensed social worker i'm a i'm a life coach and i'm a case manager but i do a lot of the same training and we we here do so many things that bring together a diverse community that co-workers together. And I'm saying at the department levels, they don't give that support to their officers. They don't open that uh, door to bring in the diversity and the conversation and to have their officers engage with their own personal trauma, maybe, and have them like, you know what I mean? Start to get in touch with what they're at and it, because this whatever this quiet culture is is this authoritative um it's it's becoming you know obviously it's fatal and we need to change it so i could go on forever you know but your point your point is well taken uh yeah and it's, it's true these are um these are troubling situations and i'm telling you the conversation can go on for quite a while. We'll never get through it all in the, in the course of this show, uh, right. but it's a reality. And I think that's what makes it, uh, you used the term earlier, uh, Tracy, the culture. We talk about that all the time on this show, man. The culture is stronger than cement. You can't break culture yeah. many times when it's embedded in society or in institutions, yeah. whether, it's, whether it's schools or law enforcement or corporations. A culture is very difficult to, to, to break, and I think that's the challenge that we face as a society. But I think if we start holding officers accountable, not I'm talking yeah. you're going to prison for 25 to 30 years. I promise you there will be a change in behavior. Dave, go ahead. You had a question yeah. for Tracy. And, and tonight's subject is a very upsetting subject, and we are seeing it more and more often. And one of the questions I had for you is that you're on the front lines, and to us, it appears that violence by police seems to be increasing. Do you see that happening? Do you feel that that's happening? And if you do, how do we stop that? Yeah, it feels like um, it's like an it's to me it feels like a, a, an agitation that had been simmering already between the community and you know the department, especially in these areas. Um, and I, I don't know how to, 
answer that except for that these communities, they need more crisis intervention help and and they need more officers that are going to want to have that personal care and get to have, you know, like get to know these people and make relations. And 26 years in the force and she doesn't know who Dante Wright is, you know, um, and, and for his, for his good things, uh, for, for other kids that I've worked with, um, that are afraid to drive around, you know, and, 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 and the issue of that, there's no real answer except for awareness. And, and we have to speak, we, um, you know, all different, you know, diverse cultures here in Minneapolis, I'm seeing it and witnessing it, that I think we need, uh, it's a really, I feel like the YMCA is so amazing and, and the way the culture that we have, I want the police departments to start watching us. I want them to, and, and maybe some are, but they don't have the right to speak up yet. And they're not like in these, these, like you said, the culture, but like the leadership there and the training is so old and ancient. It, it, it's, there's, this has become now, you know, time when it's time after time after time. And, you know, they've just, you know, they've had so many police misconduct, you know, like reports, like 400, I want to say in 2019 in Minneapolis. Um, and, and it doesn't go anywhere. They don't do anything. So here we are again, you know, and you, you're telling me we haven't been trying like the community itself. So that, you know, to see the police agencies do what they do. I, I do have to give credit to during George Floyd, the St. Paul, the police department, they were the ones on their knees. They were the ones in front of the governor's house. Yes. Uh, you know, and a couple got down on their knees and that was a right. moment for the city. I, I can't explain the words that that felt like, uh, but we need more of that. Okay. Well, Whatever sure. that is. No, no, no. For they sure. need to get down that. on their knees and, and humble themselves. <laughs> no, no, for real. And I remember seeing that moment and they took their hats off. They, and they yeah. put their hand across their chest. That as, as Tracy, yeah. as you say, was a moment in time. We're going to right now, Tracy, uh, if you're good with us, stay with us. Uh, if you, okay. for any reason we get beyond time and you have to go, we got about another probably 40 minutes left on the, on the air. Uh, but we're going to sure. bring our second host on. I, I think the, the dialogue is good probably between the both of you as well as all of us and our listeners. Uh, right now joining us is Tricia C.K. Hoffler. Uh, she goes by C.K. That's my understanding on this. Uh, and uh, she is uh, CEO of the C.K. Hoffler firm and president of the National Bar Association. CK, are you with us? I'm with you. Good evening. Good evening to you. I, I hope I uh, uh, announced that correctly, that you go by CK? I go by CK. My real name is Tricia, but I go by CK. Okay. All right, CK, we appreciate you joining us. I don't know how much of the show you've heard. A very difficult show to have, but necessary. Uh, we're on the line uh, also. She's going to join in the conversation with us as well. Tracy Ferdinand, uh, she's been on here dealing with uh, youth at a great, at a high level. Uh, and we have been just troubled by Dante Wright, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Eric Gardner, Walter Scott, Michael Brown. And 
This list continues to grow. Thus, the, the title of the show is The Senseless Killing by Law Enforcement Continue in America. And we don't see any slowdown here. Uh, I want you to give us your thoughts. I'd like you to introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, and I'll give you the floor to do that. And uh, you have a very extensive, uh, I'd say, resume, so I'm going I'm to give you the honors of that. Of all that you're involved in, we want to say first, thank you so much for what you do. Uh, go ahead and, and introduce yourself. Introduce yourself to our listeners, please. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. Um, I've been a lawyer for almost 34 years. I am president of the National Bar Association. I'm chair of the board of Rainbow Push Coalition. I've represented and worked with Reverend Jesse Jackson for the past 32 years. So almost my entire legal career, I have been counsel to Reverend Jackson and Rainbow Push Coalition and organizations. Um, I'm in private practice, have my own firm in Atlanta, Georgia. I also do civil rights work. I do discrimination work. I do catastrophic injury work, opioid litigation, tobacco litigation, and commercial litigation. I'm a trial lawyer. And um, so I have, over the past, I don't know, 32 years, even though I've been on a corporate commercial private sector side, I've always had a civil rights angle to my practice and my person because, of course, you can't serve as counsel to Reverend Jesse Jackson for over three decades and not be involved and engaged on every major civil rights or minor civil rights and human rights issue. So that's mm-hmm. really my background. Well, let me let me ask you this, CK. Look, people are really upset right now, as they should be. Um, Absolutely. As uh, almost a year later, uh, you have Dante Wright killed by police officers, um, leaves a two-year-old boy without a father, and the world has reacted very seriously as we simultaneously conclude, are concluding the trial of Derek Chauvin, who who kill George Floyd. What are your thoughts as an attorney, as a human being, as a professional? Where are we in this country right now? Well, and I would add to that as a mother of two African-American teenage boys, because that's where I start my journey. So where are we in this country? We are in a very, very bad place. Um, where where we are witnessing, where mainstream media and mainstream America are witnessing front center the ravages of police brutality. You know, in the African-American community and black and brown communities, this is not new. This is not a new phenomenon. You, you went through a list of, I could go through a list of 100 off the top of my head probably, um, yes. and certainly that is not anything to brag about. But sure. of late, here we're in the... We heard closing arguments. The jury is, is deliberating, are going to be deliberating in the in the Derek Chauvin case uh, due to the killing and I say murder of George Floyd, which this country and the world saw before its very own eyes. And I'm reflecting on what the prosecutor said in the um, trial of Derek Chauvin in opening statements. He said, "Trust your eyes," yes. and the world is trusting its eyes. It wasn't eight minutes and 46 seconds. It was nine minutes and 29 seconds. So this country is in a horrific place. We're in a horrific place because we see the divide. We see the racial divide. 
which many of us have lived through and known, but it's more stark than usual. We saw the what, I, what was, as, as a trial lawyer, I would say an excellent case presented by the prosecution. Excellent. Excellent witnesses, with the exception of a couple of maybe hiccups, the, and which happens in every trial. I wouldn't even call them major hiccups, but just minor things that happen. They presented a very, very strong case, evidence-driven, evidence meaning witnesses testified, and there was documentary evidence as well, and video evidence. We saw over and over and over again, particularly in the initial stages of the trial, the dissection of that devastating video where we witnessed a police officer single-handedly killing a person who was pleading for his life. And my impression, if you trust our eyes, there's no question about that. That's not up for debate. The only question is what the, that's for some CK. And as you know, all of these cases, whether it's Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Walter Scott, um, and, and, and Dante Wright are being led by National Bar Association lawyers, my lawyers, my members, whether it's um, you know, past president Ben Crump, the past president of our organization, Chris Stewart, a president of our affiliate chapter in Atlanta, past president there. Breonna Taylor, one of his lead counsel, is Lonita Baker, who's the vice president of the NBA. And I could go on and on. Daryl Parker, yes. former past president of the NBA. Our members are front center in this litigation. We have helped to train at the National Bar Association these lawyers who are standing brave because it's not easy to do these cases. You've got to be in the community. It's not just trying a case. It's not just being an advocate on the civil side. You have to be in the community, and you have to be there to protect your clients. So we've been on the front lines at the NBA. We've taken a position. We, we have our lawyers in the front of, of, of criticism, receiving death threats, many of them, as the family members are, but yet we continue the fight. So where are we? We are in a very difficult place, but I have to believe, I have to believe that those jurors, that those jurors will see and trust their eyes. And despite some evidence that was presented by the defense through cross-examinations and through their main witness, Dr. Fowler, I suppose. Uh, um, and, and I was not at all impressed as a trial lawyer with what Dr. Fowler had to say. He was not credible at all, at all. Right. But the job of the prosecution is not to carry the case and to prove their case. It's just to poke holes and the prosecution's case, and create what we call, and you have heard, reasonable doubt. Well, it only takes one juror to hang a jury. Only one. And for there to be a conviction, all of those jurors have to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that George Floyd was murdered, that he was killed, and he was murdered by Derek Chauvin. Not Derek, by, by, yes, Derek Chauvin that he was killed and that he was murdered. And it's beyond a reasonable doubt. If one does not feel that way, then that juror, if that juror is a leader and that juror cannot be persuaded by the other jurors, and that's why I say a leader, because a leader will stand on his or her own two feet and will say, look, I'm sorry. There's nothing that you can say to persuade me that George Floyd was killed beyond a reasonable doubt. And there could be a juror or so amongst that jury pool. So where we are is in a devastating place because we may very be where very well be confronting a situation where where George Floyd's family 
the Minnesota, the Minneapolis community, this country, and the world will not see justice. And that's a reality. And then to add insult to injury, as the prosecution is wrapping up its case, another police officer shoots and kills a 20-year-old black man, a baby, a child. Let me just tell you, he's two years older than my, 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 my oldest son who's about to go to college. This is devastating for black and brown people, but really, quite frankly, it should be devastating for America. There are many people who are not black and brown who find this to be a tragedy beyond tragedy, who are seeing unfold for the first time. And, and of course, the men in our community say we don't know why it's the first time since it's been happening. But the to see someone killed in, in nine minutes and 29 seconds, if we just stood here and sat here silently and imagining someone having a need to to his or her neck during that time, we would understand the devastation. Someone in handcuffs, by the way, not someone roaming the streets, in handcuffs, by the way, we would understand perhaps the devastation. And, and if we really look at this in a real sense, did George Floyd actually know why he was dying, why he was being killed? Did he actually know? Surely we didn't see an investigation of the $20 alleged counterfeit bill. I didn't see it. Did he really well, know why he was being killed that day, that night? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, the protocol at the store was that if the cashier was to take the $20 bill in question, once they accepted it as form of payment, uh, according to protocol, they would have never followed George Floyd because it, it was accepted. Uh and the gentleman that testified, the clerk said he felt he was dealing with guilt because he felt protocol was if you accept it, you pay it out of your check. Uh, it comes out of your pocket. Well, George Floyd gets in his car and he goes away. We're not having this conversation uh, at that point. Um, I do agree with you on the the trial itself. I think it's it was compelling. Uh, we, we've been on this topic for the last couple of weeks. And a gentleman said to us last week, one of our guests, he said, I said, well, it looks to be that the case is pretty open and shut, that this man would be convicted. And he reminded me, and I am old enough to remember this, of the Rodney King situation with four officers all acquitted. Mm, and Rodney, Rodney King's face told a different story. Uh, the abuse and all of that told a different story. And the lady said yesterday, as I scroll through TikTok quite often, she said, if, if there is no conviction in this case with George Floyd, we have, we have not seen anything yet. Mm. I wonder how many people share that sentiment. Sentiment, excuse me. Well, um, I do know that is scary. Because of what we saw uh, prior or right after the death of George Floyd and the universal outcry internationally across waters of the people crying and outraged about the death of George Floyd. And I think, David, you had a question for our, for our guest. Yeah, uh, CK, um, Dave Banks here. I'm just curious. I I've noticed that it appears that 
police have become somewhat hardened and have created this uh, environment of us against them. And that's what it appears to be happening through this process. You have politicians stoking, well, you got to protect the blue. And then you have a self-righteous mm-hmm. nation that just doesn't want to accept the fact that this stuff is happening. And it seems to be exacerbating tensions at even at an even greater level and hardening the hearts of police in many cases. Thankfully, uh, the Minnesota police actually came to testify against Derek Chauvin. But it doesn't seem like that's the, the prevailing nature of policing in this country, especially given uh, the posture of police unions. I guess it's their job to try to protect the officer. But uh, sadly, uh, it's just, it's almost like this, this country is so sick and they don't want to accept the fact of who they are. And if they would just yeah. address issue by issue, maybe we could make some progress and start to heal. But uh, they, they always seem to circle the wagons and harden themselves. Like, well, they're attacking us. Nobody's attacking you. We want, we want issues addressed when they come up. Mm-hmm. Do you see the, the, that typical hardening? And each and the police going to the corners and 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 trying to uh, pretty much circle the wagons against uh, the public outcry. And CK, we're going to get your answer on that, and I also want to hear from Tracy on that as well. Go ahead, CK. Well, um, Dave, I, I I do see the hardening in some places. It was noteworthy. It was significant that the brass in the police department of Minnesota came out and said, "Wait a minute." What Derek Chauvin did was not according to protocol, not how he was trained, not what he was supposed to do. And for the police chief in particular to say this is when he should have stopped. This is why he should have stopped. And this is where he should have stopped. And he didn't just do one example, but he went through and dissected all of the actions taken against George Floyd and where there was an aberration or deviation and where Derek Chauvin went wrong. Professionally, ethically. He used the words ethics, professionally, and by training. So not all of the police have gone rank and file in support, but the police unions in some states and some places are all powerful. And they make a difference, like in Illinois, Chicago, the police unions are powerful. In many places, actually, even in Minnesota, police unions are very powerful. So just think of what it would take for African-American or other non-African-American police officers to break ranks and say, right is right and wrong is wrong. This is wrong. So you do see the hardening in some places, but not all places. And I think we have to, they have to come together. Because if not, if it doesn't happen, then this this country will remain divided and, and the divide will get worse. And only only God knows what will happen. Sure. And so Tracy, that, I think, um, is, is is how I see it. No, no, no. No, absolutely. Tracy, your thoughts on that question? Yeah. Um, you know, the hardened part and, you know, yeah, yeah I agree, too, that the police unions are so strong, um, especially here in uh, Minnesota. Um, but uh, I do have something I can share on this. I sometimes listen to, I hate to say the word enemy, but I sometimes listen to diversified commentary on the air. air. And I'll even, I'm going to use a quote because we need to call it out. But 
I, I heard I was I turned on Sean Hannity today just to see what they were saying. Um, and mm. you know, yeah, I know I got to do it sometimes, and I got to see what they're saying. Um, and a police officer, I you know, I caught it right at the right at the right moment, and the police officer called it had called in and was saying, um, and use I quoted this, I got my notebook out and said, um, you know, the situation that probably happened in that agency was, well, he, Dante would, is what we would consider a frequent flyer. Um, and we see these people every day. And, uh, and Sean Hannity cut him off and said, oh, oh, I know that, you know, you might be a good cop. Long story short, anybody can find the clip. I'm going to say that that's a perfect example of this divide. And that hardened of heart and the leadership and the, I'm big on lead with love. So I don't know where this hate and why this hate is, you know, for whatever reason is so apparent to all of us now. And it's in the form of killing young black men. Okay. So I just wanted to share that if that's any kind of nut for. Well, absolutely right. Uh, Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, ladies. Uh, you still good with us on time? We get, looks like we're looking at about uh, roughly about 15, 20 more minutes max. We'll be closing out this show. Are yep. you guys okay with us to the end of it? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I've got another um, about 10, less than 10 minutes, but I'll stay as long as I can. Well, here's what I'll do, CK. We're going to take a quick break, come back. I want you folks to know how to get a hold of you. Uh, I think what you're doing is outstanding. Uh and and we need people like you, like Tracy, like other organizations that are out here saying, look, we have a problem. And the first way we can fix a problem, we, we better call it out for what it is. We have to. Otherwise, we live a life behind blinders, and we continue to seek down this hole. But the problem is body bags follow with us, and that's unacceptable. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Foreman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, They each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. Let's just be honest. When we look across the street to the Supreme Court and we see equal justice under law, 
Um, when you have drug laws so severely, disparately enforced against some groups, let's, let's take African Americans, for example, there's no difference between black and white marijuana usage or marijuana sales, in fact. But blacks are about 3.7 times more likely to be arrested for it. Um, African Americans are more likely to get uh, mandatory minimums, are more likely about 13 to get 13% longer sentences, and has created these jagged disparities in incarceration. In my state, blacks are about 13, 14% of the population. They make up over 60% of the prison population. And remember, the overwhelming majority of people we arrest in America are nonviolent offenders. Now you've got this this disparity in the arrest, but that creates disparities that painfully fall all along the system. When you get arrested uh, for possession with intent to sell, do it in inner city, now you're within a school zone. So now you have faced an even higher mandatory minimum. Now you're 19 years old with a felony conviction, possession, intent to sell in a school zone. Forget even all that. If you just have a felony conviction for possession, what do you face now? Thousands of collateral consequences that will dog you for the rest of your life. You can't get a Pell Grant. You can't get business licenses. You can't get a job. If you're hungry, can't get food stamps. Uh, you need a place to live, you can't even get public housing. And what that does is created within our country concentrated areas where you have massive levels of men being incarcerated. You create a caste system in which people feel like they, there's no way out. And we're not doing anything as a society like we know we could do because there's tons of pilot programs that show if you help people when they are coming back from a nonviolent offense, that their recidivism rates go dramatically down. If you don't help them, what happens is left with limited options, many people make a decision to go back into that world of, of narcotics sales. Uh, uh, what's more dangerous to society? Someone smoking marijuana in the privacy of their own home or somebody going 30 miles over the speed limit, racing down a road in, in a community? What is more dangerous to society? But yet that teenager who makes a mistake for doing things the last three presidents admitted to doing now they have a felony conviction because it's more likely they're going to get caught. And for the rest of their life, they're 29, 39, 49, 59, they're still paying for a mistake they made as a teenager. Now, that's not the kind of society uh, that I believe in, nor is it fiscally responsible. Nor, it's undermining their productivity, undermining their ability to take care of their family. This is so wrong that those conversations that I'm having with conservatives as well as uh, Democrats uh, are resonating. And so when you have people like Rand Paul standing up and talking about racial disparities in incarceration, this convergence and understanding uh, of fiscal conservatives, of Christian conservatives, of libertarians, shows me that this is a time of great hope for our country. And so I'm not going to question people's motives. This is one of those issues like the civil rights movement in the 1960s, which should pull all Americans together to say enough is enough. Oh, 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we have taken a journey, if you will, to another tragedy of another African-American young man that was killed at the hands of law enforcement. Let me be clear when I say this, that we are aware that there are honorable officers all across this country. We're aware of that. And our issue is not with them. But to those that dishonor the badge on any level and life is lost, we have an obligation as an advocacy organization to call it out. Uh, but to the officers that honor the badge, we salute you tonight. But those that do not, we call you out for the conduct that has cost lives across this nation. George Floyd, as we await his verdict uh, in his case, and then the death of Dante Wright. Um, is very troubling. Joining us tonight, our two very special guests, uh, C.K. and Tracy Vernathan, have joined us tonight to give their perspective on this. And uh, out of respect for C.K.'s time, uh, I want to give her the opportunity uh, to give a closing remark, if you will, uh, to how do we go forward from here? And, uh, and thank you for your service to this nation. Go ahead, C.K. Well, thank you so much. Um, well, I think, how do we go forward? We have to push collectively for policing reform. Right now, there's the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act that was, by and large, crafted and drafted by the Congressional Black Caucus, members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and others. This needs to pass. There needs to be widespread policing reform. It's comprehensive. It's bold. But we need comprehensive and bold right now. Otherwise, these senseless killings will continue, and this country will go further down the drain, threatening democracy on every single level, because enough is enough. People are not going to tolerate in our communities this continuing to happen without recourse. So that's one measure. Secondly, yes. we have to watch very carefully and pray that this jury that is sitting in judgment of Derek Chauvin does the right thing and looks at the evidence, trusts its eyes, and will find a conviction. Acquittal should not be an option. That's period under discussion. Because right behind that is the Dante Wright case. And if there is an, if there's an acquittal, then there will be such desperation throughout this country, throughout that community, throughout the world, that there will never be justice in a case where we saw with our very own eyes something that is inexcusable and undescribable that we know happened, that resulted in death. Rodney King resulted in profound beating. This resulted in death that we witnessed nine minutes and 29 seconds. Yes. So what happens here will have an impact on the next case, the Dante Wright case. And we just, our hearts just go out to these families, but our hearts also have to go out to all of those families who have been suffering, some in silence, some vocally, four years for justice and material. So yeah. I say that in closing, there is hope. And we have to keep hope alive. We have to believe that as a country, we can come together. The grassroots organizations that have fought and, and protested these young people who are saying, no, enough is enough, black and white, hand in hand, Asian, yeah. Native American, saying enough is enough. We encourage that encourage that but we are really counting on this jury to do what the evidence leads it to do and that whatever that dr 
Fowler and other, the minimal evidence that was presented that made no sense. Use your common sense, I say to the jurors. Use your common sense. Don't leave it at the door when you're in deliberations. And for the people, no matter the outcome, we have to look at a better tomorrow. We have to press widespread, comprehensive. Call your members of the Senate, your senators, and say, this must happen. Call the Senate lines and don't let this be just another narrative of another black man, of another black boy being killed. Because if so, this country will not recover. And I am hopeful. I really am. I'm hopeful and I pray. And for the lawyers, my members of the National Bar Association, know we got your back. Keep hope alive and don't let this injustice keep fighting the good fight. Because that's what we have sworn to do in taking an oath to protect and represent our clients. So that's how I feel. I am an optimist and I will never stop fighting. And so I think that's what we have to do. Well, thank you, CK. Very well spoken. I can't tell you enough uh, for you. But it means to AJC Radio, Just Cause Organization, that you took the time tonight out of your schedule. I can't imagine your schedule, uh, but our thoughts and prayers are for you always, for your safety, for the safety of your children. Uh, we wish you the very thank best. You. And please, please know you have a voice on AJC Radio going forward as many times as you need it. We appreciate what you do. Okay? Well, Thank you for inviting me. And don't tell me as many times as I need it. I might be here every day and night because I love what you do. I love what you, you do. And I just thank you all for including me. Well, thank you and so I'm very much. No, we'll be in touch, okay? All righty. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye. Well, there you have it. CK, uh, well-spoken uh, on those issues. Uh, Samson, you had some thoughts on this. Talk to us. Yeah, I was actually going to talk to um, to CK while they were on, but definitely uh, Tracy as well because she's on the front lines and she sees this uh, pretty much every day. And then being uh, a mother of a youth that is going to be facing this social climate, you know, how does how do you handle that, Tracy? How do you engage um, with your your child and tell them, hey, you know, this is the climate you're growing up in. How do you prepare them? You know, how, what kind of toolkit do you provide uh, for your own mm-hmm. child? To hey, look, this is this is the world we live in right now until we as a nation stand up and, and spark some type of change? Yeah, that's a really, really good, good question. And it hits home, obviously. And uh, it takes a lot of listening and it's a lot of talking. We're doing a lot of talking. It's just like, you know, ever since the, the George Floyd thing, it's, it, it hit home. And then now this again, it's, you know, um, I, I tr- I've always tried to teach my kids to stay aware and be aware, be alert. And just, I mean, even with everything and, and th- my son is so smart. And, but the thing is, is as a mother and living in this climate and it's changed, it's changed my whole, yeah. I've already had issues of like having looks and stuff, you know, from, you know, different people and have, you know, me and him driving or me and him at a store and stuff and have things happen. But this is a different level of fear for as a mom. And I was going to say, too, as as, um, you know, my own son who, you know, I have to watch myself and not be too overprotective. And um, but you know what I mean? But like in this climate, we are we're on curfew. You know, I don't know if we're completely if every county is again tonight, but it's also affecting like, hey, you know, you can't go can't go anywhere past this time. This is changing in so many respects. And, and so a lot of talks during dinner, a lot of talks all day um, and listening to, you know, 
my son is, you know, he, he says he's not afraid, but he's sad. Um, and you know, so it's like, but my youth, I, I, I just want to share, um, I have a quote from one of my youth. I'm not going to give a real name if I can't, you know, and this really says it is as far as like, uh, what, where I'm going to move forward, how, how to move forward. Um, she says, I got five brothers. This world makes me so scared for their future. When will it end? Literally have to explain all of this to my 11-year-old autistic brother, and I know he's going to cry. This makes me so scared because it shouldn't be normal. Black kids shouldn't even have to grow up like this justice for that young man. She wrote that after uh, Dante, and she's 18, and, you know, um, she lives in this area. And that's, this is, this is, this is affecting you know, to move forward, I have to deal, uh, as a life coach, we help them with life skills. So there's some daily survival things. I have some kids that are in, in better situations than others. I have some kids that are living in their car. Can you imagine my fear? I, I'm in checking in all the time. Um, because this, that's just the point made. I'm going to get emotional, but a lot of my kids have lived in their car. Um so, you know, they, we need police officers in our area that are going to be able to communicate better, period, well, to our, to sure. their own, to their clientele, their service area. I need better. We need better from our police department. If they're going to continue know. to exist. <laughs> no, I, I do you agree know. with you. I do agree with you on that. And, and again, Tracy, my heart goes out to you. Uh, for all the yes. hard work that you do, um, we, we, we pray our thoughts, our prayers are with you. Uh, we join in Thank and we you. get together in this fight. Please know that. It just calls uh, AJC Radio. Uh, again, I'll extend that same invitation to you as I did CK. Uh, if we need to get a message out, if we need to find somebody that may be in trouble, uh, sure. again, you have a platform here always on AJC Radio. I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. Uh, it looks like we're going to be going into this conversation next Thursday again. Um, okay. You're welcome to get in that dialogue if necessary, as other guests probably will be coming on as well. Uh, it's okay. so much information, so much stuff, and I think we'll be at a so different much. time next week because we're looking yeah. probably at a verdict in the George Yeah, George we are. Case. Um, we are. So that, that, yes. Go ahead. No, yep, I was just agreeing. We are, we're getting close to that. Yeah, one day at a time, but it's getting closer. You know, well, just know this, our time, uh, if you want to come back on and, and, and share that dialogue, please feel free. I'll reach out to you this week. Uh, okay, I'm awesome. As we, as we God bless you. Yes, the okay. same to you. Uh, take care of yourself, and uh, uh, we'll be in touch with you for sure, okay? Okay, sounds good, Lamont. Thank you so much. God bless you all. You're doing great work. Thank you so very much. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, this is difficult. Difficult situation. Difficult conversation. But we got to have it. We have to have it. If we don't. Uh, and to our uh, host here, uh, we got a lot to talk about, a lot to say. Uh, can't do it in two hours. Uh, we'll be back here next Thursday, I presume, with this same topic. Uh, but also, I'm sure the verdict of uh, Derek Chauvin, uh, 
Where will we be as a nation next Thursday? We're going to find that out uh, and deal with that. Samson, closing thoughts really quick on this show. Yes. I mean, as we talk about all these cases that have happened, I mean, the Eric Garners to you know, George Floyd, even, I mean, this uh, Dante Wright. I mean, if you can't see the trend that is happening in our country, you need to wake up. Because the fact of the matter is, is like too many young men of color are being senselessly killed at the hands of police officers. And like we said, not all police are bad, but the good ones need to stand up and they need to start, start policing their brothers and sisters in uniform. They need to start standing up for what's right. You took an oath to protect and serve, and you need to stand by it. And until they do that, I mean, we as a nation need to stand up and be the voice for those that can no longer speak because they've died at the hands of these police officers. And to all the families, to Dante Wright, his family, the mother, the father, the siblings, the family members, our thoughts and prayers go to that family. All our condolences to them as they are going through a very, very difficult time. And to the George Floyd, the family of George Floyd, um, dealing with that loss as well. So next time, America, we'll be back here next Thursday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time uh, to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, we look forward to you being a part of this show as we continue our discussion, senseless killings of African-American and people of color. And this nation continues out of control. Until next time, good night, America.